0: You're listening to the podcast of Christ Church in Albuquerque, New Mexico. We hope these sermons help you to know God through Christ by deepening your belief in the gospel.
1: The reading this evening comes from Luke, chapter 15, verses 11 through 32. And he said, there was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, And bring the fattened calf and kill it, and let us eat and celebrate, for this son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found, and they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. This is the word of the Lord.
0: Let's pray. Our Father, we are so thankful for your word that Jesus has given us this parable, this story that applies to all of us, each and every one of us. And so we pray now, Father, by your Spirit, that you would draw all of us into Uh, closer knowledge of Christ into greater and deeper love for you, O Father. We pray for these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, good evening, everyone. Uh, My name is Nathan. If I haven't met you, I would love to meet you after this service. If you're visiting with us tonight, welcome. Uh, You have joined us for Luke 15, which means that you have joined us for one of the most famous stories that has ever been told. We've been slowly working our way through Luke's Gospel, and actually tonight, chapter 15, we're going to get through the entire chapter of chapter 15. It's the biggest chunk we will have bitten off in one sermon, but I wanted to do this because the entire thing goes together. The story, commonly known as the prodigal son that you just heard Stephanie read, is the third culminating story of three stories, three parables that Jesus tells. Other than the parable of the Good Samaritan in Luke 10, this is probably Jesus's most well-known parable. Even if you've never been to a church before, even if you have never even read the Bible, you might have some inkling of this story just still resonating in our culture today. If you hear it just one time, if if this was the very first time that you had ever heard this story read, uh, you probably get the point. But hopefully, at whatever point you're getting, however, you've understood this story over the course of your life, hopefully, that we'll all leave here uh, together in, a, in about an hour or so with an even deeper appreciation for both Jesus' amazing storytelling genius, but also a deeper appreciation for Jesus himself, for the good news that he has come to preach, for the good news that he has come to accomplish, and for all of our eyes to see a bit more clearly and our hearts be a bit softer to the love of God. All right, we've got a lot to get to tonight. So we're just going to jump right in. and thinking through Luke 15, the entire chapter in two halves. First, the joy of lost things found. And then the mirror of that, the misery of found things lost. So the joy of lost things found. We've seen over the past many weeks that Jesus has been over and over and over again confronting the scribes and the Pharisees, the religious leaders of Israel, relentlessly warning them not to trust merely in the knowledge of the law or merely in their external obedience to the law, while all the while ignoring the law's intent. And after we saw last week that Jesus isn't necessarily trying to build some huge momentum-building movement that snaps up the easy, low-hanging fruit. Following Jesus will be costly, but it will be worth it. It will be sometimes difficult. But because that means following Jesus, it means following the death of the self, the death of our own desires that we think that we want. And so following Jesus is difficult, but not impossible. Jesus has so much grace and patience with his disciples who fail but keep following him. And yet, even though he is not trying to build this big momentum-building movement, lo and behold, the crowds keep gathering around him. They keep growing around him. Even though he's not a politician making wild promises to make people's lives easier or better, people who recognize the kingdom of God that Jesus is offering are gathering around him. But what kind of people are the kind of people that Jesus is attracting. Luke 1. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. Tax collectors were those who were skimming money off the top of their Jewish countrymen's businesses for themselves to then send some of it back to Rome. They were some of the wealthiest Jewish folks and, and they were absolute cultural and social sellouts. They were utterly despised. And then Luke tells us tax collectors and sinners. This is just a catch all word for all kinds of folks who were in public or prolonged periods of completely ignoring the old testament law they're likely not pursuing any means of forgiveness or cleansing at the temple they were simply just happy to live life as they were they were perhaps openly irreligious they were living their lives completely ignoring god and what he wanted for them only now luke tells us in verse one they aren't ignoring god They're coming to hear about repentance and about transformation. They're coming to hear about righteousness and forgiveness. They're coming to hear about discipleship and holiness. The preaching and ministry of Jesus is causing people to awake to the reality of and the goodness of God. He is causing lives to change and for people to care about what God cares about. Incredible news. And yet, verse 2, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. And so, verse 3, Jesus told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. This man had just lost 1% of his entire income. It's likely this sheep, this 1% of his income, this 1% sheep has likely become dinner for the wolves. And so leaving the 99 behind where there is strength in numbers, the shepherd goes out to search for this lost sheep. It takes effort. It takes prolonged searching. And guess what? Lo and behold, the sheep is not dinner. It's still alive. Who would believe it? It doesn't make sense. But what was once lost is now found. And so when he gets back, he calls together all those who are closest to him, and they have a party. The friends there are happy for him. Our buddy, he he dodged a real bullet there. He found his sheep. Let's celebrate with him. When he is happy, we are happy. And then Jesus says, verse 7, "...just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents." than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. When a person who was previously and openly and publicly irreligious, when they are happy to live their life ignoring God, when a person like that comes awake to the reality of, to the goodness of God, when there is repentance, when there is a turning to care about what God cares about, heaven rejoices. There is no rejoicing for those who never come to a place of repentance. Jesus is not saying that there are some people who do not need to repent. Jesus has come to all people saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. All people live for themselves. All people are happy to live their lives to one degree or another, ignoring or defying God, whether moment by moment, day by day, or even year by year. So there is obviously then no rejoicing when the the majority, when the 99 say, you know what, that's not for me. That's for others. I don't need to repent. Are you not getting it? Jesus goes on. Verse 8. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, rejoice with me. For I have found the coin I had lost. This lady has not lost just 1% of her income, but 10%. She's lost a full day's wage. Have you ever been in this lady's shoes? Where you've like misplaced a $100 bill? Or more than that, you've misplaced the envelope full of money? The picture here is a lady who is stressed out. No, 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 no. Where, where is it? It's got to be around here somewhere. It's just got to be. And she starts looking. She's looked under the same couch cushion seven times. She's looked under the driver's seat of her car nine times. It's not in any of the pockets of her pants or her jackets. She's checked them all so many times. It's not in the dresser drawers where she keeps her odds and ends. It's gone. But she keeps looking and she keeps looking and she keeps looking well into the night. After after hours of the sun has after the hours of the sun going down, oh my goodness, she's found it. She gets on her hands and knees, and perhaps it's, the coin has rolled under the table, back into the back corner. The hundred dollar bill, the envelope of money, was actually not in the dresser drawers, but under the dresser. I don't know how it got there, but she's found it. And have you been in this lady's shoes, where you have lost something, your car keys? Something that is so important. You look for hours and you finally find it. And when you find it, what do you do? You like sigh and you like crash down into the couch. I found it. And what does she do? This lady invites friends over to rejoice with her. She was in a real pinch there for a minute. For a whole afternoon and evening. So she invites her friends to come over and to be happy with her. Verse 10, just so I tell you. There is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Got it? Remember what the context of all of this was, where the tax collectors and the sinners are grumbling over who Jesus is attracting. And so these two very short stories then flow right into the ultimate storytelling masterpiece. Now, I should tell you, uh, much of what I'm going to say come from both Tim Keller and Peter Williams. These two men in their books, uh, Tim Keller's The Prodigal God and Peter Williams, The Surprising Genius of Jesus, are just tremendous. Uh, The Prodigal God was one of the most important books that I've ever read because it came to me in a time of real doubt, of real confusion. I think about that book a whole lot. And while I didn't go back and read that book this week in preparation for this sermon, I won't likely uh, attribute anytime I mention something that Keller has said, because it's just kind of stuck in my heart. Uh, But so just know that Keller is going to be weaving in and out of this. But to the parable. Jesus tells this parable, and we have two sons. And first, the younger son. The younger son, right at the beginning, comes to his father, and he says that he wants his inheritance now. The son has essentially just told his father, I wish you were dead. When do you get inheritance? At the passing of your parents or your grandparents or those who have left you things. He wants the father's things, but he does not want the father. And the father should have, should have driven him away with nothing. The son may have well have just come to, and, uh, come to the father and just spit in his face, completely ignoring the third commandment of honoring his father. But the father hears the son's request— and he not just, he doesn't just give the inheritance to him, but in the end of verse 12, he gave his property, the inheritance, to them. Not necessarily in half, but one to the older brother, likely getting double of what the younger son gets. So, so two-thirds to the older son, and then half of that, one-third to the younger son. And the older brother has made out pretty well here. Then we read, or Jesus says that, verse 13, not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And now if, here's the point where if you or I were telling this story, if, if we were directing this movie, our sinfully curious hearts and imaginations would make what happens probably a pretty important part of the story. It's like if we were directing this movie in a modern day retelling, the younger son takes hundreds of thousands of dollars to Vegas. And maybe we make it in our movie retelling of this, we make it a montage, but we'd want to, you know, for the sake of the story, we'd want to see how he wastes his money. But not Jesus. All Jesus says is, there he squandered his property in reckless living. Is this just because Jesus is a prude? Jesus, if he were to explain the ways in which this younger son is wasting this money, Jesus would get like super red and embarrassed talking about and describing such things. What a church kid this Jesus guy is. No, that's not the reason. To Jesus, sin is boring. It's just here one day, gone the next, self-worship. What adventure is there here really to describe? Nothing. The sun is just doing what we would expect millions upon millions upon millions of other people to do in the exact same situation. It's so predictable. There's nothing worth describing here. It's not exciting. It's just very boring. But now, Jesus tells us, there's a famine. The son is selfish and he's now also very unlucky. unlucky or depending on your perspective, he's actually very lucky. Because now... There is nothing to eat. He has nothing. Not only are all the parties gone and over, he's starving. So starving that he eats with the pigs, right? No, he was longing to be fed with the pigs. If only he could eat what the pigs were eating. But there's not any of that food either for him to eat. He is dying. He has reached the very bottom. And then Jesus takes us inside the younger brother's thoughts, into his inner psychology. Jesus says in verse 17, but when he came to himself, it's like he's just been awakened. He is finally, and for the first time in this story, understanding reality, understanding what is really real. And he says, Jesus says in his thoughts, he says, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. What in the world have I gotten myself into? Well, verse 18... So I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. So treat me as one of your hired servants. To this young man, forgiveness is not enough. He thinks that his past life has utterly disqualified him from his place in the family. His place as a loved and honored son. Maybe, maybe, just depending on putting his whole life into the kindness of the integrity of his father. His father will allow him to just live on the land, to come back as a hired servant. If he is just his father's servant, there he can sleep in safety. There he can eat, maybe not decent food, but food. He can work for his father with some sense of purpose and meaning each day, but he has zero expectation. For the rest of his life, it's just survival. Just sustenance, not forgiveness, not belonging. And honestly, in this culture, the original hearers probably didn't expect anything different than what the son was imagining. If they're listening to this story of the so-called prodigal son for the very first time in their life, they're probably expecting maybe because of the kindness of the father, he will respond to the son in exactly the way that the son hopes he will. But Jesus is surprising. The love of God is surprising verse 20 And he the son arose and came to his father but while he was still a long way off his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him and the son said to him father i have sinned against heaven and before you i am no longer worthy to be called your son but the father said to his servants bring quickly quick the best the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and quick bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate for the, this son My son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now you can see how this story fits in with the rest of chapter 15. The shepherd had lost 1% of what was important to him. And when it was found, he called those closest to him and celebrated what was once lost. What joy! And when the woman had lost 10% of what was important to her, when it was found, she called those closest to her and they celebrated what was once lost. What joy! And now, when the father has lost 50% of what was important to him, one of his only two sons, when the younger son was found, the father called those closest to him and they celebrated what was once lost. What joy. And the story should really just end there. The surprising love of God is on high display here. When sinners, who once were living in complete disregard for the father, Those who were saying, I wish you were dead. I hate you. I do not care what you say. I do not care what you think. I do not care what you expect. I will defy you. I'm going to ignore you. I'm going to live my life as if you did not exist. The younger son didn't love the father, and the way that he wanted to avoid the love of the father was irreligion. Where the younger son gets to say, I get to make all the rules. I get to do what I want to do. I get to live as if you don't exist. But he not only found that this was actually quite boring. This kind of master of your own fate way of thinking and living actually doesn't keep the promises that it makes. But it actually ends up in a dead end of discontentment and loss. The pursuit of joy. The pursuit of contentment. created, limited, small things will always and always and always keep you wanting more and more and more. The small and limited created things cannot do what we hope they can do for our hearts. And so the younger son, now turning from his life of the self, just wanted to return to some sort of life with the father. And what does he find? Joy. The abandonment of the self actually leads to the life that he thought he wanted all along. For he he who will lose his own life for my sake, Jesus says, will find it. And the father comes running to him. Doesn't wait on him. He pursues him. He interrupts the son's life in grace and in kindness, in welcoming forgiveness and acceptance and in joy, in celebration for those who repent. And might this be an invitation to any and all here tonight who have not previously agreed with God about sin, who have not agreed with God about the need for forgiveness, who have avoided the love of God by breaking the rules. There is no amount of rule-breaking, there is no level of sin or defiance of God in your life that you can reach to that point that he will no longer forgive. There is more grace in the Lord Jesus than there is sin in you. And I have been praying for you this week that perhaps you, like the younger brother, when he came to himself, when he awakened in his own thinking, that you would see your avoidance of God, that you would see the faithfulness of God to you, and that you might say, I will arise and go to my Father. Father, I have sinned against heaven, and I have sinned against you. And there will be rejoicing in heaven when just one sinner repents. When you today might repent and agree with God about your need for forgiveness. Heaven is waiting to watch the lifelong transformation of coming to hear Jesus, to hear the teaching of Jesus, and then follow him. But here's the really, really surprising part of the story here. That it doesn't end right there. Jesus now turns the spotlight on the previously ignored older brother. Some of your Bibles may not subtitle this parable, the parable of the prodigal son, but the parable of the two sons. And that's right. We've seen the response to the father from the younger son. But now, how does the older son respond? We've seen in three parables so far the joy of lost things. Now let's see the misery of found things lost. Based on the rejoicing that's happened in the other parables, we would expect the older brother to also be excited. His brother has come home. And so, as the older brother is coming home, working late, presumably, We read, or Jesus says, that the older brother drew near to the house. The party is already happening. Just as the younger brother, who was far off, also drew near to the house. He has not seen his younger brother in years. He's probably assumed that he would never see his younger brother again. He was likely already dead anyway. But he's alive. He's returned. What joy! But verse 28, Jesus says, but he was angry. And refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, Look, these many years I've served you, and I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. He was angry. He refused to go in. And so the father comes out to beg him to come in. Come in and celebrate with everyone else. But unlike the younger son, who in honor and in love for his father addressed him as father, when the father goes out to the older brother, the older brother just immediately goes straight into it and says, look. No deferential honoring of his father. Immediately, we find out the older brother is not who we thought he was. He too needs to draw near. And so he essentially then goes on in this angry diatribe. He says, I have never disobeyed you, and therefore, implicitly, and essentially, he is arguing, therefore, because I have served you this many years and because I've never disobeyed you, I have rights. In fact, who is it that is paying for this meal and for the celebration? It's coming out of the older son's property. The inheritance that he's received. So he's saying, I deserve to be consulted about this. You don't have the right, Father, to make this offer of grace and kindness to this idiot little brother of mine who has disgraced you and disgraced our family's name for all these years. This inheritance, this very party belongs to me. And so here's where we see mirror images of the two sons, of the two brothers. The younger brother, didn't love the father. We saw that already. And the way that he went about avoiding the love of the father was to break the rules. Irreligion was the name of his game. It was his way of life, pretending as if the father did not exist so that he could get what he wants. But the older brother didn't love the father either, did he? And the way that he went about avoiding the love of the father was to keep the rules. Religion was the name of his game, was the way of his life. And so Jesus here is redefining sin. We have two alienated sons on the outside looking in. Two alienated sons that must draw near. One of them is bad, and one of them is good. The younger brother's unrighteousness kept him far from the father. But it was the older brother's righteousness that kept him far from the father. The older brother was just as resentful of the father as the younger brother. He too wanted the father for his goods rather than what the father or who the father was in and of himself. They both wanted to get into a position where they could tell their father what to do. Both rebelled. Both avoided the father, one by breaking the rules and one by keeping them. And yet, many of us find ourselves in the exact same position. Many of us finding ourselves in the spot or in the place in this story of the younger brother needing to come and draw near to the father by our breaking of the rules, by our keeping far from God. But some of us, perhaps more of us in this room, are in the position of the older brother needing to draw near to the love of God by, and repent not only of our breaking of the rules, but because of the wrong motive of our keeping of the rules, of our trying to muster up a sense of righteousness that actually keeps us far from God, that keeps us from needing and trusting in Jesus as a Savior who has saved us from sin. You actually don't need a Savior who pardons you by free grace if you actually have no need for a Savior. So Jesus may be your helper or your example, example, but not your Savior. Now, we would never— say that on a theological exam, would we? That we keep the rules in order for God to give us what we think that we deserve. But how do we react when things don't go as we want them to? In 2010, this being an a NFL, NFC and AFC championship Sunday, in 2010, the Buffalo Bills, stay with me on this, The Buffalo Bills had stormed back from a huge second-half deficit, and they had forced overtime against the Pittsburgh Steelers. The Bills got the ball first, and they got a receiver wide open on a long-bomb touchdown. The biscuit was in the basket. This dude just had to catch it, and he lets the ball go right through his hands. The Steelers get the ball back, they kick a field goal, and win the game like 10 seconds later. And as soon as the game was over, this receiver, who will will remain nameless tonight— He goes to Twitter in the locker room, from the locker room, minutes after the game, and he tweets in all caps, which if you're new to the internet, if you put something in all caps, it is very serious. And he says, he tweets, I praise you 24/7!" exclamation, 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 exclamation. And this is how you do me, continuing in all caps. You expect me to learn from this? How? I'll never forget this, ever. Thanks though. LOL. Now we can kind of laugh this off as really silly. Uh, NFL receiver uh, just blasting God after he drops the game-winning touchdown. But how often do we react in the exact same way? Appealing to your own merit to earn God's blessing. You're supposed to bless me because I keep all the rules. I praise you 24-7, and this is how you do me. You have no right to do this. Why? For I am righteous. You owe me the life I wanted, for I have served you all these many years. But when we do this, like the older son, we are judging God to be unrighteous. I am righteous, but God is not acting in accordance with my righteousness. I am right. God is wrong. Sin then is not breaking, not just breaking a list of moral rules. Sin is putting yourself in the place of God as Savior, as Lord, as judge, just as each son sought to displace the authority of the Father in his own life. But just as the father ran out to the younger son with embracing warmth, kindness, and grace, the father comes. He comes out and he invites the older brother in. He invites all of us older brothers in and says, will you come to me for me? Not because what you have done for me and therefore you deserve, but will you come in? Will you rejoice? Will you celebrate with us? Will you or won't you? Verse 31, he said to him, son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. And the story ends. But before wrapping this up, this parable is, if you'll stay with me for a second, this parable is much like Shrek. Uh, a small child Can watch Shrek, can enjoy Shrek, can understand the overall narrative of that movie. But Shrek is also filled with jokes that go over the little kids' heads and that only the parents catch or understand. Or even if you're an adult, you're a mature 30 year old English speaker, but you've come from, you've lived your whole life in like Southeast Asia or something. There are even still deeper jokes and references in Shrek that you would only get if you were deeply immersed in American pop culture. To appreciate the full Shrek experience, you have to be a person that understands the cultural nuance of the jokes. This parable has so much more depth than it appears at first glance, which is where Peter Williams has been so helpful. Let's ask some questions of this parable. Who else in the Bible is famous for having two and only two sons? Isaac. Jacob and Esau, the two sons of Isaac in the middle chapters of Genesis. And Jacob, the younger brother, cheated his brother out of his inheritance. How did Jacob cheat his father? He put on his brother's robes. And with his father, he eats a meal of what? young goats. The only other meal in the entire Old Testament of young goats. Then Jacob, the younger brother, goes off into a far country to look after animals. And then he eventually returns to the land of his father. In the parable, the father, what does he do when the younger son is approaching? The father runs, embraces, and kisses There is only one other time in the entire Bible, the entire Bible, where we read those three words, runs, embraces, and kisses, which seem to suggest that Jesus is being very intentional here with those words, and there's only one other time when someone runs, embraces, and kisses someone. Can you think of it? Genesis 33, Jacob is returning to the land of his father, and he is terrified of his older, older brother Esau. Jacob has cheated him out of Esau's inheritance, and he expects fury from his older brother. But what happens? Esau, the older brother, the older brother runs out to meet him. He runs, he embraced him and fell on his neck, and he kissed him. Esau, who was the bad guy who had preferred soup to God, who had been cheated, forgave his brother. We won't get into the other deep connections of Joseph, the younger brother who gets a ring and a robe, who in a time of great famine, who the father thought was dead, was actually alive in a faraway land and came home. Or Abraham who ran to greet strangers and told his wife Sarah, quick, get the food. Or Ishmael, the older brother who is cast out of his inheritance from his father Abraham because Ishmael, the older brother, despised the feast that was given in honor of his younger brother, Isaac in Genesis 21. But here's the point. We, who are perhaps somewhat familiar with the Bible, can see, oh yeah, now that the preacher's up there making those connections, I can see those things. Yeah. But these Pharisees and scribes, who would have had most of, if not the entire Old Testament, memorized, Jesus is being very, very, very intentional by saying and doing, and making the connections that he's making in this story. Even the specific words, not one word in this parable is wasted or without intent. Jesus is weaving the entire Genesis story in and throughout this very short parable, and every single one of the references makes a moral point. Abraham quickly gave lavish entertainment to complete strangers. Ishmael despised the feast For his younger brother, Esau, though cheated out of everything, forgave. Joseph forgave what his brothers did to him. And so the question that is left hanging here at the end of the story is will the scribes and the Pharisees put themselves into the story and hear these references? As another scholar has written about Esau, what Jesus does here is penetrating and is an astonishingly astonishingly subtle rebuke of the Pharisees. And this is it. Even Esau would welcome and and rejoice that sinners and tax collectors were coming to hear. Jesus leaves the parable hanging. We don't find out what happens to the older brother. We don't find out if he stays outside or if he comes into the party. The question for the scribes and the Pharisees listening is, will you remain outside of the party, sulking Or will you you just continue out there in in misery, just standing out there miserable instead of rejoicing when those who were lost come near to the Father? Are you going to remain in a state that is worse off than Esau? Esau, who never got the blessing for God because of his faith. The faithless Esau who preferred soup to God is better off Then these Pharisees, are you going to remain like Ishmael, the one who did not receive inheritance, despising what was once lost now found, and remain in a place where the Father may just send you away forever without any inheritance? This is the genius of Jesus. He's able to teach and to warn two groups of people at the exact same time. One story. Moral challenges to any kind of person who is listening. There is an an invitation to everyone, a challenge and an invitation to everyone who heard this story in the first telling and who hears this story in this room today. Have you been keeping far from the Father, avoiding God's love for you by just assuming that he's not out there, ignoring what God wants, Ignoring what God desires. Ignoring what God expects and even demands of your life. Keeping yourself from God by a life of irreligion. This parable is for you. For you. Unlike this older brother, Jesus, our true older brother, has run to receive we younger brothers into the very family of God. There is no way for the younger brother to be brought back into the family unless it comes at great cost to the older brother. And Jesus gave up his place of glory so that we might be elevated with him. Jesus was stripped naked so that we might wear the father's robe. There is more grace in Jesus than there is sin in you. Come to him tonight and he will welcome you with grace, with warmth, with kindness, with mercy, forgiveness. Perhaps for many of the rest of us, we older brothers in this room, have you also been avoiding God's love for you by living a life of merely keeping the rules? Now, I want to be careful here. Sometimes we say, oh yeah, one of my kids, one of, usually the oldest one, he's such a little Pharisee because he's so obedient. That's not a bad thing. It is not bad to be an obedient child. It is not bad to be an obedient child of God. This is actually good, but when the obedience comes just for the external, just for because I have to, rather than because of who you are, with an internal heart that does not come behind it, when it is an external keeping of the rules so that you get to make demands, are you keeping yourself from God by a life of religion? that you actually don't know or love the Father, but you just check the boxes so that hopefully you too can get exactly what you want. This parable is for you. Jesus is for you. He has not come to give you what you think you want, but he has come to give you himself. But when the fullness of time had come, Paul says in Galatians 4, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. Then an heir, through God. All that he might free us to, not begrudging obedience— but lives of joy for the glory of God who made us and loves us. What a gospel. What a God. What a Savior. What a brother. What a friend. Oh, for grace to trust you more. To trust Jesus, our older brother, our Savior more. To trust and to know and to draw near to the Father more keeping arm's distance in a myriad different ways, but drawing near each and every day, more and more, just as Kyle said earlier, for eternity. We could do this for days, weeks, years, centuries, and millennia, and still not get to the bottom of the love of God for us, that we might know him more, trust him more. This parable is for all of us in this room. But this parable is going somewhere. Luke 16 is coming next. And if this one was pretty easy to understand on a first-time read, the next parable in Luke 16 is about as impossibly difficult as it gets. So read it this week, and then hopefully we can make some sense of it next Sunday. Let's pray. Oh God, we are so thankful for your patient, for your faithful kindness to us who were wandering sheep and children. Prone to wander, Lord, we feel it. Prone to leave the God we love. And yet you, Lord Jesus, our kind shepherd, have come to seek and to save the lost. To woo and to carry those who would wander off on their own. Those who have intentionally kept ourselves far from you. You are so kind to see us, to know us, to love us. Please forgive us. Help us this week to know and to love you not for what we can get from you, but you. Your character, your power, your glory for who you are and what you've done. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. We hope you have been encouraged to deeper life in Christ through the preaching of this sermon. For more information about Christ Church, visit www.christchurchabq.com.